While You Were Folding, Episode 39, The Heart of Perfection with Colleen Carroll Campbell. Hi, I'm Catherine Boucher, and you're listening to While You Were Folding. This show is my weekly excuse to talk about my favorite things, marriage, parenting, faith, friendship, culture, what I'm reading and watching, and whatever else strikes my fancy. I've been a wife for 11 years and a mother for nine. I won't pretend to be an expert. I will introduce you to some amazing guests, ask a whole bunch of questions, invite you into the conversation, and encourage you to share what you heard while you were folding. Instead of jumping into prayer like I usually do, I have something a little bit different planned. I heard from a lot of you last week, and I even got a ton of Voxer messages from you. You might remember I described it as a walkie-talkie type app, and it was so much fun to get your to hear your voices, and I plan on sharing your feedback and all that good stuff next week. But today, I have something different. I had the chance to interview author and homeschooling mother of four, Colleen Carol Campbell. You probably recognize her name from her awesome spiritual memoir, My Sisters the Saints. But today, I'm sharing a conversation that Colleen and I had about her new book, The Heart of Perfection, How the Saints Taught Me to Trade My Dream of Perfect for God's. And this book is one of my favorite reads from this past year. The book is part memoir, and it's also part deep dive into the lives of a few saints. It's similar in structure to My Sisters the Saints, for those of you who read that one. So she talks about a couple of different saints and also one heretic who battled with spiritual perfectionism. And throughout the book, Colleen shares her own experience with different aspects of perfectionism, but through the lens of the spiritual life. And it's a beautiful book. I loved it so much that I want to give away two copies to my listeners. So be sure to stick around until the end of this episode to find out how you can win a copy of Colleen's book, The Heart of Perfection. Colleen is a personal hero of mine. I so admire her writing and how she seems to prioritize the truly big stuff over what the world says that she's supposed to be doing. Rather than go on and on with my gushing, you'll hear more of it in the interview when we get started, but I'll go ahead and get to our conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Well, before we launch into our conversation, I would love it if I could open us up with a prayer and then we can jump right in. Okay, Great. great. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to get to talk tonight with Colleen. Please bless our conversation and open our ears and our hearts to whatever it is you would like us to learn from one another and from you. And we ask you to uh, allow this conversation to be a source of um, consolation and comfort and hope and peace for all of those who might be struggling with perfectionism, especially in their spiritual lives. And we ask that you continue to lift all of us up in our vocations, no matter what it is that we're called to, and that we can always turn to you as the source of our hope. We pray this through your name. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast tonight. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to join you. And I am the biggest fangirl of your work. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely loved My Sisters the Saints, and I have been a longtime fan of your writing, and I cannot wait to jump into this book. Like I told you when we talked over email, I actually chose this book, The Heart of Perfection, for my book club book of the month. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's good. This is a club you do with your friends or your parish yes. or something? Yeah. yeah, it's about a dozen women from my parish. And oh, nice. We all, it's always a mix of fiction and nonfiction. Um, but before we get to the book and all of that, I would love for you to briefly, for anyone who's been living under a rock and doesn't know who you are, if you could please 
just introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your background and what you've been doing lately and a bit about your family, because I think it ties in perfectly with the story of the book tonight. Sure. Well, I'm Colleen Carroll Campbell. My background is primarily in uh, journalism and writing of all forms. I uh, spent many years as a journalist in the secular media, newspapers, television commentary, that sort of thing. I also have written three books. The first was The New Faithful. It was kind of a journalistic study of young adults returning to their faith. The second was my spiritual memoir, My Sisters the Saints. And the most recent is The Heart of Perfection, which we're talking about tonight. Um, I've hosted my own TV and radio shows for EWTN, appeared on a lot of the major TV networks and done a lot of punditry and op-ed columns, that kind of thing. And I've even uh, served as a presidential speechwriter for a time for President George W. Bush. So I've been all over the map when it comes to uh, writing and communication. Um, These days, I am focusing mostly on books and speeches, and I'm homeschooling my four children who range in age from nine down to five. So that's uh, that's the skinny on me. And I'm obviously I'm married and four kids, homeschooling. What did I leave out? And I live in St. Louis, Missouri. I love it. And as we established in our email correspondence that we are in the same time zone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't don't rely on me to figure out daylight saving standard time, especially, you know, in the summer when some states change and some don't, I I get totally confused. So I'm glad we figured it out. (laughs) So solidarity for central time zone, the Midwest girls. That's right. Um, So I would love to just jump in. I have a million questions about this book. And I think I underlined at least one thing on every page. Oh, great. Um, So I identify as a recovering perfectionist myself. Okay. High achiever, very type A, pride myself on organization. And then I became a mom. And... (laughs) I have five young kids and life has taught me that I am so not in control, (laughs) which is awesome because I'm not God as it turns out. And (laughs) your book just resonated with me and a lot of my girlfriends a lot, but I would love for you to explain to those who haven't read the book, how you came to the concept for the book itself and what spiritual perfectionism means, how it's different from what the world might consider perfectionism. Right. Well, Catherine, like you, when I became a mom is when I really became aware that I had a perfectionism problem. I, uh, I think I'd been called a perfectionist in the past, but I hadn't paid much attention to that. I thought perfectionists were um, people who had perfectly spotless homes and who, you know, alphabetized their CDs and color-coded their socks and did all these, you know, things that I don't do. I thought they didn't have senses of humor and didn't know how to relax and have fun. (laughs) So, okay, that's not me, so I must not be a perfectionist. And I was a hard driver and overachiever. I still am in many ways. Struggled with workaholism, still do on occasion. So, um had these traits, but didn't really see it as a problem until nine years ago when my twins came along. They were my first two babies, and they came, uh, you know, after many years of prayer for children, and I chronicle my struggle through infertility within My Sisters the Saints, my previous book. But as I recount in the heart of perfection, it was when the babies arrived that I discovered that indeed I was a perfectionist and that this was going to be a real problem with motherhood, not Mm -hmm. just because kids don't always live up to your expectations or I don't mean live up so much as, uh, you know, your timelines and what what you think is going to happen when, but more in my case, it was more that I wasn't living up to my expectations of the kind of flawless mother I was going to be. I was, you know, I was tired and I was worn out and I was making mistakes on it, you know, just normal mom stuff. But Mm -hmm. I had, prayed for these babies and I wanted to give them my best. And, you know, I found myself beating myself up pretty early in. I mean, I was about six weeks in when a friend confronted me and said, you know, there is no room for perfectionism in motherhood. And I really took that to heart. And it was the first time I really saw myself as a perfectionist. And as I began to unpack that, and I discuss in the heart of perfection, and particularly the first chapter, how I started down this journey of recovery toward perfectionism by first, of course, just becoming aware that I did have a problem with it. I began to realize that it was rooted, not just in what the culture was telling me, or maybe, you know, family patterns or whatever. It was rooted most deeply in my relationship with God and in what I thought I had to do to be worthy of God's love that I really think deep down, even though I would have never admitted I believed it, 
I thought I had to earn God's love and keep earning it, or I might lose that love or at least his blessings. And Mm -hmm. when I realized that, I realized I don't just have a problem with perfectionism. I have a problem with spiritual perfectionism, which is the problem that we grapple with in the book, in the heart of perfection. That's a perfect explanation for it. And I had never even considered my tendency toward everything that you just described as spiritual perfectionism. I thought Mm -hmm. I had no idea how it was distorting and affecting my relationship with God. And I'm so grateful for your insights that you just took the time to put paper to pen in spite of being a mother of four, homeschooling and the whole bit. I am just so inspired by your ability to make that happen. And it's been a big source of consolation in my own life. And I know in many other people's. So I would love to talk about, um, especially the part of the book, it's similar in format with my sisters, the saints, how you, you dove really deeply into different saints. And I love how you formatted the book, you had the introduction, and then you talked about your study of different saints and how they themselves battled with different aspects of perfectionism and their human imperfection and where they invited God in and then where one of them went very wrong with it (laughs) as a heretic, Angelique. And unfortunately, I identified very strongly with her. Oh, so did I. She's she's scary precisely because she's not the villainous you expect. Right. Yes. And the um, the place when I brought this up with my book club, the place where all of us had triple underlined everything that you wrote was where you were talking about St. Ignatius of Loyola and mm-hmm. the concept of discernment of spirits. Mm-hmm. So I want to start there if we can. And I imagine some of the listeners, it's a mostly Catholic audience, but I think a lot of the listeners maybe are not familiar with discernment of spirits. So if you could briefly explain to the audience what that means, that would be great. And then we could jump into it from there. Sure. So Ignatius of Loyola is one of what I call the recovering perfectionist saints that I profile in the heart of perfection and someone from whom I learned a great deal. And he's, of course, pretty well known as a founder of the Jesuits. You know, he created this order that known as the Soldiers for Christ. He himself was a soldier briefly. He was he was kind of a wild one. He was a ruffian. You know, he's getting into bar brawls and that sort of thing. He was from a privileged home, but uh, lost his mother at childbirth and seemed to be kind of fighting his way through life until he got on the battlefield and his first big battle where he was going to make his name. He got a cannonball, shattered his leg, and that was the end of his military career. So as he's con- convalescing after some and during some uh, really painful surgeries and then recoveries Ignatius is stuck in this house where he can't find any of the good novels he wants to read about chivalry and romance and all the rest and all he can get is the lives of the saints and the life of Christ and so he reads these and he begins to notice these these movements in his heart and this is where the very earliest seeds of discernment of spirits in his life were were sown he begins to notice that when he reads the worldly novels that he wants or rather he didn't have those novels at hand so when he sort of daydreams about what a hot shot he's going to be when he recovers and what beautiful women he's going to land and all the rest of it he is excited for a time and then he finds afterward he always feels restless and kind of grumpy and and empty and then when he reads the lives of the saints or the life of christ He's filled with some you know, deep joy, but it doesn't go away. Afterward, he's left even more peaceful. And um, as he dreams of God's glory, basically, rather than his own, he's filled with what he would later describe as consolation. You know, there's warm, peaceful feelings that, that he really has great hope for his future. So he takes this as a signal that God speaks to us through our hearts and through our emotions and through the movements of our hearts. And so he is converted. He decides he's not going to just be a soldier anymore. He's going to be a soldier for Christ. So he goes on this pilgrimage to Manresa, a small town in uh, Spain, and he lives in a cave for a while. This is where his famous spiritual exercises, this is a 500-year-old book that people are still reading all the time and still using as the gold standard for Christian discernment. This is where those exercises really are come together is during Ignatius's own struggle with himself in this cave while spending hours upon hours on his knees, uh, 
you know, big confession of all of the sins of his life. And he had quite a few to, you know, confess. And then he goes back and confesses them again. He has a few of those bouts and he's trying to serve the sick. He begins to kind of be a spiritual director to others in the community. Um, But he's still mostly in this cave. And this is where his real battle with spiritual perfectionism kicks into high gear because he finds that even though he's confessed the sins of his past life and he's spending so much time in prayer and in service to others, especially through spiritual direction, he's constantly remembering his old faults and beating himself up over them. He keeps going back to the confessor to confess the same sins over and over. He hasn't committed them again. He just can't really internalize God's mercy. Mm -hmm. And he hits a point where he is in this cave and he's kind of uh, near basically a pit, you know, it's a, 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 he's at this point, I think he's living in the outskirts of a monastery. It's kind of like this dilapidated area, looks at this chasm and thinks, I can't do this forever. I just want to jump into that hole and, you know, really contemplate suicide Mm -hmm. briefly and realizes in that moment, wait a minute, that is not the voice of the Lord that's leading me to this, to this brink. So just as on his sick bed, he recognizes, boy, that's the voice of the Lord here. He recognizes, whoa, whatever I'm into right now, that's not of God. Mm-hmm. So he decides then and there, he's never going to go back and keep confessing sins. He's already confessed. That's over. That's done with. And he begins to formulate his rules for discernment. And uh, there are a lot of these. I mean, there is certainly something uh, a layperson can read and understand. I recommend the books of Father Timothy Gallagher, if you really want to deep dive into some of the specifics of them. Yes, but in the it's heart awesome. Of- Oh, he's wonderful. But in the heart of perfection, I highlight the rules and I unpack the ones that I think are most helpful for those of us who struggle with spiritual perfectionism. And I think what's really helpful is that these are a deeply steeped in scripture. So these are very biblical rules. He's not just mm-hmm. he's not just inventing these out of thin air. He's getting this from scripture, obviously, in, in accord with church teaching. B, they come from the blood, sweat, and tears of a man who struggled intensely with things like discouragement, distraction, a tendency toward overcommitment and grandiosity, um, a tendency to beat himself up over his weakness that he recognizes. And a lot of these are familiar to those of us who've struggled with perfectionism, which is why I think we really need to look at these rules for discernment again and sort of dust them off and apply them to our lives because they're not just for a guy living in a cave. Right. They're they're very applicable. And I can speak as a woman living in the world with kids and work and all the rest of it, that they have saved me more than once from from big mistakes and helped me make sense of mistakes I have made so I don't have to keep making them. And I um, have followed your writing career for a while. And I have noticed outside looking in, knowing the little that I know about you, it seems to me that you are very willing to not play by what the world says the rules are supposed to be. For a woman who is an accomplished author, I watch you publish this book, and you are not actively trying to build up your social media presence with a million posts every day. And you are not trying to be everywhere at all times. And again, outside looking in, it looks to me that you have figured out a way to still be in the world. You're a very accomplished published author. You already spoke about your background and all of the things that you've already accomplished that the world would point to as a worldly success. And yet you are still a homeschooling mother of four that's able to remain committed to that. So I would love to hear you speak about when it has come to making these really big, important decisions that affect you individually, and then also your family. How does the day to day nitty gritty when you're making those big decisions, whether it's about your children's schooling, or whether or not you're going to move or making the transition from being a columnist at the St. Louis um, Post Dispatch to staying at home? How did you go about that process or has it slowly changed over time? Or could you just explain to the listeners how you go about doing that? Sure. And obviously our discernment skills, you know, they, they get a little sharper as the years go on. So um, yes, God willing. <laughs> and I had some, I mean, I, remember, I had a very holy Jesuit priest that I knew I'd met at Marquette University and he went on to be the spiritual director at the NAC where a lot of our, you know, bishops come out of the mm-hmm. NAC in Rome. And he was a, just a really holy man. He, he died um, uh, fairly young some years ago, but he was kind of my introduction to 
the nuts and bolts of the discernment rules and uh, just a real gift in my life. I've met others who've also walked with me through these, especially in my 20s when I was just trying to figure out which end was up and what does discernment mean and consolation and desolation. So my head knowledge of this has been around for a while, but Mm -hmm. my heart knowledge and having apply this uh, into my own life. You know, I think that's where probably I've grown more in recent years. And again, you know, having kids, having to balance um, our, our, our commitment to our families with, with that desire that we have to also reach beyond our families at times and do other things in the world is uh, where I've, I've had to test a lot of this and, and use a lot of this. Mm-hmm. But I would say in terms of the development of it and how do I Uh, grapple with certain decisions, I do pay a lot of attention to the movement of our hearts. And here's something where I think sometimes as faithful Christians and specifically faithful Catholics, we can sometimes forget that God does speak to us through Mm -hmm. our hearts, because I think we're rightly very frightened of being um, loosey goosey, you know, okay, my heart's telling me I just want to like run out tonight and do such and such. And right. (laughs) And we all know people who's whose family lives and whose lives in general are a disaster because all they're doing is constantly following their quote unquote heart, you know, and, and we all know that can get you in a lot of trouble. If feelings are your God, then, mm-hmm. you, you know, you're going to end up in a tough spot pretty fast. So I'm not talking about that. But what I do think is important that Ignatius brings to the conversation that too often sometimes in our fidelity to the rules, we kind of forget is that God and our relationship with him is not just about rules and that he really does desire our deepest joy. You know, our Mm -hmm. deepest joy is going to be found in union with him and in union with his will. But his will is not going to be this albatross, you know, this uh, noose that we wake up one day and it's slapped around our neck. And there you go. God's will. You know, and I think sometimes Mm -hmm. as Catholics, we can get that impression. I mean, I remember, you know, as a kid kind of imagining your vocational call being sort of like this long bony finger kind of taps you on the shoulder when you're not looking and, you know, you're just (laughs) terrified if you walk past the convent, they're going to get, you know, Yes. (laughs) And I, you know, and then of course I have adult friends now who have felt a very joyful uh, call to the religious life. That's not how it was for them at all. I mean, there can be fears sometimes in following God's will, but more and more, I think I've come to pay attention to when my heart is filled with joy, with peace, with a sense of hope. Mm-hmm. And to equally important to pay attention to the sense of drivenness, discouragement, foreboding, and, and really just almost despair that I get when I'm kind of in the grips of something that maybe I think is God's will for me, but it just seems like uh, it's going to lead to a dead end. Now, again, mm-hmm. sometimes we can be in desolation. We've made a good decision. Uh, we followed a careful discernment. We've consulted others we trust. And then after we make that good decision, we get tested, you know, can you hang in there even when it doesn't feel good? And that's kind of a different matter. But I do think in the beginning, when we're first testing an idea, it's important to pay attention to the movements of our hearts. And the best indicator for me in the very beginning, when all the obvious boxes are checked, you know, this isn't contrary to my vocation, or this isn't something that's contrary to God's law or scripture, is peace. You know, Mm -hmm. do I feel peace in my heart with this decision? Does this fill me with peace and hope? Or does it spark an excitement that feels somehow kind of compulsive and not really of God? And that's something that's pretty subtle. But I think the longer we strive to pay attention and to discern with the Lord, I think the more clear it becomes. I agree 100%. And I really admire how you are modeling that the feminine genius can extend beyond the four walls of the home in a beautiful and balanced way without it turning into a black and white, all or nothing sort of thing. And like I was alluding to before, playing by the world's rules of the way it's supposed to be, and that you can do it in your own way and figure out between you, God, your husband, your family, how it's going to work. And he's going to bless that, that you mm-hmm. you can so do it your own way, and he's going to make it work, that you don't have to play by the world's rules in order to be an accomplished, successful, in his eyes, author and mother and wife. And I just, I really admire that about you, Colleen. Thank you. Well, that's very encouraging to me. I appreciate that. I would love for you to talk about the idea of false consolations when you're making these big decisions or even just a day-to-day decision. And you were quickly talking about consolation and, and desolation. So maybe first we could talk about 
the difference between what those two things are for those who don't know what those words mean, and then the idea of what a false consolation might be. Sure. So basically, I mean, desolation are those dark times that any of us feel. Now, sometimes this can be rock bottom dark. Sometimes it can just be those days when you feel like eh, about prayer and you don't want to get up and do what you got to do, even though you know it's what you got to do. Mm-hmm. Or, or you know, Ignatius has certain terms. I mean, he, he describes it as darkness of the soul, turmoil of spirit, and indica- inclination to what's low and earthly. In other words, you know, you, you'd rather watch Netflix and eat too many truffles than like get off the couch and go, you know, yep. <laughs> ask your husband how his day was or whatever. Okay, that's desolation. And we've all been there. And oh, we're yeah. also there all the time. And, you know, I mean, you know, not all the time, but I mean, this is normal. It's these ups and downs of the spiritual life. And again, when you're early on in the spiritual life, at least in my case, you know, you're you're high off a, a sort of conversion or reconversion to the faith, and you're thinking the first time desolation hits, you're like, "Whoa, what's this?" You know, "Oh right. no, I must have taken a wrong turn. What did I do wrong? What, is God punishing me? And did I, mm-hmm. you know, did I throw everything away for nothing? What's going on?" And you know, the longer you're in this this on this path, you know, the more you recognize desolation is just a normal part of the spiritual life. It comes and it goes. Consolation is, of course, it's opposite. It's those feelings of courage and strength. Consolation is actually a term that Ignatius uses um, a lot, just tears, inspirations, peace, you know, the sense of, you know, those days too, right, where you've been struggling like crazy and get nothing back. And then one day you wake up and everybody calls you and that long lost friend remembers you and, you know, you get Uh, you get this warm feeling when you look out at the sunrise and you remember, you know, Jesus loves you and you just get this sense of his peace and his presence. And it's so close. You can almost taste it. That's consolation. Mm -hmm. That too is part of the normal spiritual journey because God knows we can't do this over the long haul. If we're just constantly in desolation. I mean, there are a few amazing souls like mother Teresa who Mm -hmm. lived in, in basically a constant state of, of sort of spiritual darkness for you know, half a century and was just an amazing saint even so. And in fact, because of that suffering, but for most of us, he knows that we need kind of these carrots along the path mm-hmm. to keep keep going. So that's the difference between the two. And so most of what Ignatian discernment rules are about is figuring out how to navigate these two spiritual states that we often find ourselves in. And with decision making, this can be very tricky because the natural inclination is to think that when I'm in desolation, uh, anything I decided before I'm throwing out the window, obviously it's not working because I'm not happy. Or when I'm in consolation, oh, I feel good today. I can take on anything, even this thing that yesterday I was discerning, maybe it was too much for me. Mm -hmm. So it can start getting really tricky. And in some ways it gets trickier. Um, we, I think we receive more grace as we glow, grow closer to God and as we're on this journey longer, but the temptations get more subtle because when you first give your life to God and, you know, of course you can be baptized. I'm not saying that baptism doesn't count, but I mean, when you first sort of make an adult decision, yeah, I'm really going to try to live this. I really understand this. And I really want to more and more orient my life to God. Um, you know, a lot of times the struggles are very, basic, you know, am Mm -hmm. I going to go hang out with those friends that I know mock my faith or am I going to tell them no? Am I going to, you know, am I going to make it to uh, adoration or am I going to, you know, go out to the bar instead, whatever it is. But as you go on, it becomes more subtle and the devil is no longer trying to tempt us with obvious sins or ignoring God. He's trying to tempt us a lot of times with good deeds. And so I think for a spiritual perfectionist, one of the big temptations is to tempt us into doing things that are good, but they're not God's will for us because they're not in line with what he's already called us to. And in fact, they're going to tempt us to get so overly busy and overcommitted that we don't have time for the one thing that keeps us going, which is prayer. Mm hmm. I loved the part where you talked about it, how it feels frenzied and the difference between a true consolation versus a false consolation, that a false consolation will get you all riled up and thinking you cannot waste one single moment. And you shared an anecdote about having this idea of inspiration to write this particular thing. And you spent all this time writing it and ended up waking up the next morning exhausted. You couldn't do the thing you were supposed to do the next day. And the idea didn't seem that great in the light of day that kept you up. I'm so glad that resonated with you because I thought this is so subtle. I don't know if people have ever felt this. Am I the only one? All the time. And, And at book club, everyone was nodding their heads vigorously saying, oh my goodness, yes. 
Yeah. So it, it, it definitely resonated with all of us. You know, and it happened to Ignatius. It's interesting. And I write about this in the heart of perfection that he, um, had an experience where, all oh, right, he had to go back to school and learn Latin because in those days, if you want to do anything in terms of, you know, in the church, you, you had to know Latin and he just, he wasn't much of a student to start with. And then he's going back to school. He's bas- basically picture like a 30 year old vet going back to school with a bunch mm-hmm. of not knows 10 year olds, you know, and they're laughing at him because he can't get his Latin. And, you know, so he's got to study. But then at night when he decides to sit down and study, he starts getting filled with these amazing consolations. And like, you know, the mystery of the Trinity seems to be unfolding before him. And he's sort of getting all of these profound insights about God. And he's laying awake and thinking about God all night. But then, you know, and so uh, he has that experience both in school, but even earlier in the cave, he's got the same thing. He's laying awake all night, but then he tries to get up and serve people the next day get up and get to mat and it's hard for him because he's tired because he Mm -hmm. laid awake all night and so that's where he begins to say again uh first in the cave and then he recognizes it again later when he's in school studying his latin wait a minute you know yes it's a good thing to reflect on god but at two in the morning when i've been up all day and i've given god a good full day of prayer and service it's actually god's will that i turn it off and go to sleep and so for a lot of us who are perfectionists We can dream of all sorts of amazing things we can do for our family, for the world, for the church. But we have to be careful because, you know, uh, Corey Ten Boom had a saying, uh, whom the devil can't make bad, he makes busy. And once we get too busy, we get too busy to pray and then everything starts going dark. You know, if, if, if your light is darkness, how deep will the darkness be? And you can very quickly go way off the rails once you stop praying. And part of why good people stop praying is they just get too busy. Oh, amen. And I think so many of us identify with that, especially as young wives and mothers trying to navigate all of the demands that are put upon us. And the part of the book, I can't believe I just opened up to the page that I was looking for here. It's on page 134, where you talk about the difference between a false consolation and a true consolation. When you described what a true consolation feels like, you quoted Ignatius, he said, that it feels like a delicate, it's delicate, gentle, delightful, like a drop of water penetrating a sponge or someone coming into his own house when the doors are open. Whereas the false consolation will be violent, noisy, disturbing, like a drop of water falling upon a stone. And to me, those were the perfect descriptions of it. And I had never considered it before. So I'm so thankful for you to take the time to go through that. Oh, well, you're welcome. And of course, those are Ignatius's words. So he describes it better than any of us could because he uh, he really spent years reflecting on that. And, you know, I, I love that insight that he has that, you know, Satan is trying to break into territory that isn't his. And mm-hmm. that's why it has to be violent and disturbing. And maybe it'll come across as exciting, but there's a sense of getting shaken up. Whereas when Jesus comes into his own house, which our souls in the state of grace are his home, he, he can dawn, something can dawn on us gently and we can find even our own faults, even a huge mistake we realize we're making. God can reveal that to us in a way that doesn't feel violent and condemning. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we know that when we sense that condemnation, that judgment, that sort of violent, disturbing, oh, my gosh, it's a disaster and I'll never get out of this. That is not the voice of the Lord. And Ignatius learned that, and we can always remember that. And I think that's very helpful for those of us who struggle with perfectionism. Absolutely. And also, I would love for you to talk about um, freedom from fear when it comes to decision making, because sometimes I think we can overly spiritualize a lot of the things that truly are not moral issues. And we have to make so many decisions on a day to day basis. Could you talk a little bit about as a recovering perfectionist in the area of spiritual perfectionism, how you worked to be free from fear when it comes to the gray areas? Yes. And that was the chapter where I wrote about Alphonsus Liguri, who struggled mightily with scruples and scrupulosity. And, you know, there is kind of the traditional view of a scrupulous person. They're obsessing over every little fault, imaginary uh, or otherwise, they're you know they're confessing every dirty look they gave someone in the last 24 hours. They keep the confessor in there for hours on end. And, you know, there, there's that image. And in fact, Alphonsus was sort of like that. His mother even more so. Mm-hmm. But today, I think scrupulosity can sometimes look like obsessing over the smallest decisions mm-hmm. because we we want to invite God into those. We want to discern, but then we go 
to sort of another extreme by thinking we have to perfectly make this decision and it all hinges on it's almost as if God just can't be with us if we somehow make a false step. And here is where it's important, I think, to do as Alphonsus of Liguri did and take a second look of our, at our image of God. If we truly believe mm -hmm. he's a loving heavenly father and he sees how much we want to please him and how much we want to be in his will, is he going to let us just step off a cliff and then be there to zing us with punishment when we made the wrong choice? I mean, does that sound like a loving heavenly father? Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to remember that certainly big decisions we need to put through the, put through the gauntlet of discernment and take time with them. But sometimes even big decisions, he just doesn't make it crystal clear. And I think that's where he's asking us to trust him enough to exercise our gift of freedom. It's a gift that he gave us and he wants us to use it. And so there are going to be cases in our lives, and I've certainly experienced this, where you pray and pray and pray and you want the lightning bolt and he's just not giving you the lightning bolt. Mm -hmm. And neither choice is sinful. I mean, when one choice is sinful, then case closed. You don't have to think about that one twice. But Neither is sinful. It's just a question of which path do I take? And that's where I think the trust comes in and the sense that, you know what, I'm going to do what I think God is calling me to do, where I believe um, I'm going to find the most peace and joy and freedom, and that I'm going to trust the results to him and recognize that even if there are some bumps on this road, I'm not going to beat myself up because I didn't take the other path. I'm just going to trust that God will meet me there in that road. And that's a struggle. It's been a struggle for me. i I like to have things buttoned up and, and very clear so that, hey, if something goes wrong, mm -hmm. I can blame God instead of myself, right? <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, you wouldn't say that, but that's sort of how yep, I, think, yep. I think, you know, yep. well, then this can be your fault and I can feel sorry for myself if it goes badly. Whereas if I choose it, uh-oh, you right. know, then I kind of have to own it. But God isn't making us, in a sense, own it. He He's there for us with everything. And he does, I think, want us to step out in freedom and let go of the fear because it's really hard to be bold for Jesus. And stepping out and taking the kind of risks that a Francis of Assisi or an Ignatius of Loyola took mm -hmm. If we're waiting for him to have it signed, sealed, delivered, completely no risk guarantee before we make a move. That's beautiful. Yes. And I loved the part of that chapter where you talked about, is it pronounced Alphonsus? Yeah, Alphonsus. That's right. Um, when he talked about as a confessor wanting to err on the side of mercy and God's extreme um his generosity in his mercy and all the grace that he wants to pour out upon us instead of erring too much on the side of justice and harshness and that he was it moral theology that he wrote that's right that's right um that that's supposed to be the most surefire resource for confessors trying to navigate those waters that's right and he was he was a very important voice in moral theology, I mean, through church history, but especially in his time, because there were a lot of folks, and I think this sounds a lot like our own time, uh, even in his own Naples, where, you know, half the priests were uh, fire and brimstone, and the other half were do whatever you want, I'm you know, living with my mistress in my fancy apartment. It was, it was kind of a disaster, and I'm not saying our time is exactly like that, but it, sure. it, I think we do have these extremes, and I'm not speaking specifically of the clergy anymore. I mean, among Catholics, where there's kind of this sense of either everything goes, or we have to be uh, so uh, concerned about um, it, the incidentals, I guess you would say, you know, mm -hmm. and I think this is part of a reaction to our culture right now. I mean, Cardinal O'Connor interestingly talked about scrupulosity uh, later in his life, and he said he was seeing more scrupulosity uh, in the confessional because he thought the culture was going so crazy that faithful Catholics felt they had it to be sort of even better as a mm -hmm. result. In order not to go off the one end of the cliff, they were almost going to the other extreme, beating themselves up for the smallest of sins, um, you know, very harshly judging even the slightest infractions among their neighbors. And so Alphonsus was in a time like that, where it was the legalism and the laxity. And he came through the middle with balance and not balance like mushy middle, who cares? balance like completely clear with sinners about God's law and at the same time even more forceful about God's limitless mercy and so mm -hmm. he combined those two things and his capstone book moral theology was personally approved by the pope and it became kind of the standard text for seminarians at a time when the previous text 
was moral rigorism, which was, hey, whatever the hardest option is, that's what you got to do. And a lot of us perfectionists kind of gravitate to that. Okay, if this is the hard, miserable option, I guess that's God's will. And there again, I think we have to look at our image of God. Is his will our misery Mm -hmm. or are we actually getting something wrong there? Right. That reminds me of Father John Ricardo is one of my favorite Catholic speakers. And I don't remember if it was a homily or what, but he was talking about the story of Adam and Eve when they're in the Garden of Eden and when they they fall into temptation and they've eaten the fruit and God is looking for them in the garden and he asks, where are you? And we know as the all-knowing, omniscient God that he is, he knew where they were, but he asks the question as an invitation for them to come out. But the question we have to ask ask ourselves is, how do we hear the question, where are you? Do we hear the where are you as the, where are you, of a really stern (laughs) father that is ready to bring down fire and brimstone? Or is it the loving father that wants to help us through the mistake that we've just found ourselves in? That's right. And I think that's one of the things the recovering perfectionist saints at least for me, one of the most valuable lessons and one that I really dwell on a lot in the heart of perfection is that the cure for perfectionism is not just to throw it all out and say, all right, I I can't possibly be perfect and therefore I'm not even going to try to do anything. I'm going to get rid of my high standards or even as our culture will tell us today, you know, you're perfect just the way you are. Well, I'm sorry, maybe you are. I'm not. I I have to... (laughs) I'm not perfect just the way I am. And, you know, as a Christian, how could I believe I was? I mean, why did Jesus hang on that cross if Mm -hmm. I was perfect the way I am and I could just save myself? So, you know, that's certainly not the answer to perfectionism. It's not the Christian answer to just, you know, scrap it all together. We have a longing for the perfect. We have a longing for excellence. And I think God gave us that longing. I think it's a longing for him, ultimately. So the question is not... um, are we going to long for perfection, but rather whose perfection? And that's where gospel perfection is such a different path than the world's idea of perfection. It's not about control. It's about surrender. It's not about looking great in the eyes of the world. It's about consenting to look small so that we can be great in God's eyes and close to Jesus and allowing him to point out our weaknesses and then accepting those weaknesses and then allowing his grace to work through them. That's the path of gospel perfection that each one of these seven recovering perfectionist saints traveled. And it was only when they got on that path and let go of their own ideas of perfection that their holiness really blossomed. So I think that's important to remember because sometimes when you talk about recovering from perfectionism, People misunderstand you as saying, so just relax. Don't worry about church Mm -hmm. teaching. Don't worry about prayer. Don't worry about following the rules. You know, just take it easy and feel good about yourself. Well, that's that's not going to help because that's not the truth. It's it's truth and love. And it's acknowledging our weakness, but not getting stuck there, allowing Mm -hmm. God to move in that weakness and allowing him to be our loving father and not just seeing him as a stern judge, because that's not. That's not who's revealed to us in the gospel. Who's revealed to us is the father who chases down the prodigal son. And Mm -hmm. that's who God is for each of us. Amen. He loves us too much to leave us there in our sinfulness. Well, I have a million more questions. I just looked at the time and I really want to honor (laughs) your time. Could we quickly discuss St. Jane? Yeah. I have a daughter named Jane, named after this awesome saint. (laughs) And... I identified so strongly with her story and her struggle of gentleness. And so the question I would love to leave our discussion with is talking about for those young moms that are listening to our conversation and are really feeling like God has given them whatever gift that they're hoping to use, but because they are in the station of life that they're in right now, Mm -hmm. raising young children and the day-to-day just feeling like they're on the hamster wheel and they're never doing all the things that they set out to do by 9 30 AM. They've lost their temper and they're feeling so (laughs) discouraged Right for the women who are in that chapter, or maybe they're in a very different chapter, but they're equally discouraged. Can you speak to what you learned about St. Jane and how she could be a source of encouragement for those who are really struggling in the station they're in right now? Sure. Well, I I love St. Jane and maybe it's because she was a mom and a wife and had four, four kids in, you know, uh, less than six years. So I could kind of identify yeah. with her and, 
you know, and had a rougher life than me for sure. She lost her husband in a freak hunting accident the same week that she gave birth to her fourth child, her fourth living child. She had lost a few as well. Um, and so here she is, 29. She's widowed. She was passionately in love with her husband, and this was not a marriage of convenience. This was devastating. And she lost her husband. She's bedridden, just gave birth to uh, her little baby girl. So she's got four kids under age six, widowed, has got to move in with the irascible uh, father-in-law who's carrying on an affair with his housekeeper mistress who wants his fortune for their five illegitimate children. I mean, it's a disaster. And then Jane is a perfectionist and she's driving herself really hard because she's trying to cling to her faith for dear life. But what she's doing is staying up half the night praying, following this very convoluted regime that she got from a regimen that she got from uh, another spiritual director who thought, you know, he just needs to take this driver and driver even harder, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so she's doing all these penances. She's barely eating enough. She's not getting enough sleep. She's hard on her kids. She's hard on herself. Um, she's trying to be kind to these in-laws, but they're horrendous to her. And she's really on the brink of a nervous breakdown when she meets Francis de Sales. And he himself had had his own battle with perfectionism in college. And he tells Jane right off the bat, uh, one of his first letters to her, you're too much of a perfectionist about your faith. He says, you know, one little doubt creeps in and you think it spoils the whole thing and it doesn't. And so because she was also battling doubts about the faith. These weren't doubts that were something she consented to. It was, I, you know, I think it was partly the sleep deprivation, just a sense of, oh, what is all this that I'm doing? Mm -hmm. So he begins to lead her on a new path. And it's really a path of what he calls the little virtues, simplicity, charity, patience, gentleness. He urges her to stop starving herself. Make sure you get a decent night's sleep, at least seven hours. Um, don't go looking for heroic penances. Just be kind to the in-laws if you can. Which you know, is that, heroic. <laughs> which is heroic if you read about these folks. I mean, you know, yeah. <laughs> if you got any obnoxious relatives, I'll tell you, they can't top the ones Jane had. And um, No, her story is better know. than primetime TV. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. And I, I had great fun researching it and writing about it. Um, but he tells her, you know, answer cheerfully when you're interrupted. Discipline your children. Yes, you got to discipline them, but do it with gentleness and with respect for their freedom, with holy encouragement. And so he, he leads her on this different way. Uh, even such little things as, okay, instead of starving yourself with your penances, just let somebody else pick out your food once a day. You know, mm -hmm. And that's tough for Jane because she's a picky eater. So these little things uh, you know, she's on the brink of a nervous breakdown. She starts following this new path. Everybody notices a difference, uh, particularly her, um, you know, employees on this big estate where she's no longer driving everyone else crazy with her <laughs> prayer routines that we're always, you know, forcing them to get up at all hours of the night and so forth. But she really struggles because she has this um, amazing personality. She's brilliant. She's stubborn. She's drawn to the dramatic. She was, you know, born under the star of heroism, one biographer says. And now she's being asked to do these very quiet little things. But it's interesting, over the course of years, and, and I mean years, I mean decades, she slowly grows into this paragon of holy gentleness. And by the time she's Nearing the end of her life, she's founded this visitation religious order with Francis. Its main charism is, you know, gentleness. Um, and she has really grown into this model of gentleness for her nuns, for her children, for all those who see her. She's the kind of woman who walks into a town to start a new convent and is greeted with standing ovations. Princes come to her for advice. So do paupers. And she always gives them the same advice that saved her. And she says, the best practice of patience in the spiritual life is bearing with yourself mm -hmm. in your failures and your feebleness of will. And what I love about Jane is that she shows us first that you don't have to be born gentle, miss easygoing, uh, you know, never raises her voice, never has a temper issue. Oh, in order to Jesus. <laughs> in order to grow into a truly gentle and patient saint. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's not one personality, in other words, that can recover from perfectionism. And the second thing I love about her is that she reminds us, as Francis reminded her, and really sort of saved her life by reminding her that, you know, we can't get over our harshness and impatience toward others until we stop treating ourselves that way. And we oh. can't get over that until we stop thinking of God as looking at us with harshness. He's not looking at us with harshness and impatience. He's looking at us with love. And when we accept and internalize that, 
we can begin to look at ourselves that way. And it's only then that we can look at others and show them the very patience that we know God has shown us. Until we really believe, though, that God is patient and loving with us, we're going to constantly be patient with others because we're in that mindset. But we can break out of that. Freedom is possible. And Jane is exhibit A. I loved I love her story. And I love the whole book. You just did such a great job, just like you did in My Sisters, the Saints, of weaving in your own experience with the wisdom of the saints and what you learned from them. And I have a million other questions that I wish we could get to tonight. But I really want to honor your time. So Colleen, where can people find you online? And if they'd like to hear you speak, I know you have a couple of speaking engagements. So I'd love to have you just share with the listeners where they can find you. Sure. Well, my website is the best place for that. Um, So Colleen-Campbell.com. And that's where you can find uh, everything. The Heart of Perfection is available everywhere, but you can find it, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, your local indies and Catholic bookstores. And then Colleen-Campbell.com is my website and it has my speaking engagements, uh, links to social media. Like you said, I'm not not on there tons, but I have been uh, putting some of my articles on uh, Facebook. So I have kind of a nice little community there that sort of, you know, uh, will check in and, and you can kind of see my latest articles there on Facebook, but, um, best place is probably my website. And yes, I have, uh, some engagements, uh, around the Midwest where I live, some in Minneapolis in early 2020, I'm doing a number of women's conferences and all of that. Um, if it's not already on my website, it will be soon. So that's a good way to catch up with me. Colleen-Campbell.com. And again, heart of perfection, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and all the rest. Awesome. Well, Colleen, it was so wonderful to get to talk with you tonight. I hope someday I'll get to meet you in person. Maybe I'll get to go to one of these conferences that you're speaking at. But that would be great. Thank you so much for giving of your time so generously tonight. You will continue to be in my prayers. I love your writing and you're blessing so many people with what you do. So thank you so much, Colleen. Thank you, Catherine. That's very encouraging. Thank you. Have a great evening and I'll talk to you hopefully soon. Okay, sounds good. Take care. Thanks, Colleen. You too. Goodbye. Bye-bye. I had so much fun talking with Colleen, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. If you would like to enter to win a copy of The Heart of Perfection, here's what you need to do. Take a screenshot of your podcast player right now, and then share the picture on Facebook or Instagram with the hashtag while you were folding and then write something that you took away from my interview with Colleen Carol Campbell. Again, you're going to take a picture, your screenshot of your podcast player right now, share it on Facebook or Instagram with the hashtag while you were folding and write something that you took away from my interview with Colleen Carol Campbell. And you have until next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time to enter for a chance to win the book. So next Tuesday is July 23rd, 2019. And you have until 9 a.m. Central Standard Time to enter for a chance to win the book. And like I said in the introduction, I'm going to be giving away two copies of the book. And I'm going to announce the winners on next week's episode. So I hope you win a copy of the book because if you don't have it already, you are going to love it. It was a wonderful, it gave me such beautiful insights into perfectionism through the spiritual lens, which crazily enough, I had never even considered before. But thanks again to Colleen Carol Campbell for the awesome conversation. And I'm so grateful to all of you listeners. I look forward to sharing the feedback that you gave me from last week's episode, as well as all of the feedback I'm sure I'm going to get from this week. Until next time, don't be afraid to begin again and share what you heard while you were folding.